Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Joining the Dots. Joining the Dots is the podcast on the makers of Huck Magazine. My name's Mike Fordham, one of the founding editors. And in this episode, I sit down with novelist and publisher Tarek Goddard. At the helm of Repeater Books, Tarek publishes some of the most interesting, challenging and controversial works out there. With a list of authors that encompasses some of the most creative, critical minds, including the late and dearly missed cultural critic, Mark Fisher. Giving space to voices that would otherwise remain silent, Repeater's mission has mirrored Huck's remit to document the untold stories, to uncover the hidden narratives and to shout it loud and proud that it ain't necessarily so. Funny enough, I feel like Repeater is this uh, amazingly eclectic book publishing analogue of what we've tried to do at Huck in terms mm. of providing space for other voices, narratives that aren't mm. usually teased out. Uh, and there's something very mature in that because you're a writer, a novelist yourself, and to actually put yourself in that position to open uh, the world up to these other voices is... It's actually a liberating thing as well, right? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> being a writer and a publisher is being like a player manager. Um, you understand what it is to play, to want to be picked, how your entire world depends on, um, on, on, on your game. And then from the other side, you're having to manage many other people like that, including yourself. And um, I think my time as an author gave me a very good insight, of course, not only into what it feels like to be an author, but why writing is important to authors, why it's their entire universe. And as a publisher, a respect for that, so that as a publisher, I'm at the service of authors um, in the way that I wanted publishers to be with me when I was writing. And I hope that being an author, still being an author, I still feel more of a writer than a publisher, gives me the moral authority and the credibility to be able to work with writers um, so they understand that I'm not simply condescending to them or offering false empathy, but that I actually completely could not know more what it is like to be them because I am that too. Um, and it, it was a useful insight um, 
to you know to, to be able to do it both ways to be able to work with other authors as well and not just live within my own vision and my own way of seeing things and my own way of expressing myself has been useful because it's probably the only collective activity I'm fit for the only collective activity that I could do for a job that I'd be able to do professionally and do to some level of a level of success I think yeah, yeah. and so tell me about the repeat of mission then like how did you get here what, I mean, what was the original mission the original mission I think was to see in print stuff that I was loving reading by authors that I liked that I couldn't see ever being published um, and I, this was, this was about 12, 13, 14 years ago, um, before we started Zero Books, <clears throat> I had begun to think that the success that I was enjoying as a novelist wasn't typical, that other writers like me might not find publishers, that I might even be an anomaly. Um, I had an exaggerated idea of how easy it would be to be a publisher you know, just being a writer, um, and felt like I wanted to, wanted to have a go and that I'd seen enough of it from the other side to be able to do it to, to you know, to some, some reasonable standard. And knowing that the kind of stuff that I was enjoying reading, which was mainly in blogs and on the internet, hadn't been published and not being able to see any path forward for it to find its way into books, um, made me think that it was necessary for me to have a go myself, approach publishers to see if they'd support or back me, and go to these authors and say that I thought they had books. Um, and that led to zero books, and out of zero came Repeater. And you were talking about millennials earlier. Um, you know, we have a lot to thank them for because they're our core audience. Because when we started zero, it was very much an anomaly unusual, strange, nearly esoteric, but on the fringes and the margins. Whereas Repeater now, without really changing our mission statement, our goals or the sorts of writers we work with, is now solidly mainstream, I think. And that's because partly of the way the millennials have created a new political climate that hopefully we might have modestly influenced. And, you know, they and us have met in the middle. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. My mom um, is from Uzbekistan, Central Asia. Her parents died, um, her mother died in childbirth um, when my mother was six. And her dad died um, around the same time. Um, They had left, um, they'd left Stalin's Russia in the mid thirties. And my mother became um, a refugee and um, cast a very long story short, she sure, they, they left Russia for Uzbekistan? Or? No, they were in Uzbekistan, which was part of Russia, right, yeah. and they left during collectivization. Right, okay. Um, and um, she um, eventually made her way to England and was a nurse at St Mary's and um, then a air hostess for PIA. And um, my father is, um, was dead now, British. Um, Anglo, Irish, British, and was in the army. <clears throat> so it wasn't perhaps the most conventional literary upbringing, in as much as my mum couldn't and still can't read or write. And my father didn't go to university or finish his schooling, though he was, to give him his due, a voracious reader. And um, given what his background was and upbringing, a very unusual reader. Um, He had um, the novels of Montfellon and Nabokov and, you know, lots of things on shelves that, you know, most of my friends, all of my friends' parents would not have had. And I admired them from afar. So although there was no um, great displays of literary learning or anything like that, he was um, a person very confident within his own intellect and an unusual thinker, as well as a, as a committed reader. And I'm sure that that had an effect on me because it meant that there was some quirk in my upbringing that could explain the path I went, went down. Yeah. And I often think with fathers as well, that they, the sons and daughters sometimes tend to have the lives that the parent might have wished they had had they the opportunities, the time, the chances or whatever. And although my dad thought all of my work was crap, he was interested in it all and proud of me. Um, and I, I think he might have liked to have done something similar had it been possible. Yeah. And is that, is that unconventional mm. backdrop, that kind of Soviet Central Asia, mm. uh, mother and the, that, that, that story mm. of leaving Russia? I know you... There was something about your work that, that brings in a lot of different influences, right? Is, is, yeah. is, is that kind of... Because you study philosophy at King's as well. Yeah. That's another thing in mm. bit, which I get the feeling informs what Repeater is. Yeah. Not as much as um, studying philosophy than going on doing an MA at Warwick, where um, I became really interested in theory but just wanted more people to read it. And more of it to be written in a way that would make more people want to read it, which definitely, perversely enough, meant that we wanted to do something intellectually ambitious, 
but we also wanted to reject the academic baggage that comes with it. Right. You know, deliberate unintelligibility was not going to be a virtue in our, our way of doing things. But I think the, I mean, I think of myself as white British, not everyone who sees me might. But I feel like it would be dishonest to pretend to be anything else or to speak as anything else as I was brought up as white British. Yeah. Although my mother joined an adopted family, which was an absolute rainbow coalition of nations. But, and you know, although when I was younger, I would I met, met people, it's been a while since that um, most certainly didn't think I was one of them. Yeah. Um, it, it's not that I'm looking to conform and become one of them that makes me include myself in that lump. It's just because of how I have lived. And I think it would be false for me to um, identify as anything else, even if there are other influences in, yeah. in, in my actual world. These marginal voices now, um, with things like what we do and what you do, are, are being put into the mainstream because of the paucity mm. of critique and dynamicism of the mainstream, right? And I feel like if there is a backlash coming um, about, you know, from the digital fucking me mediocrity mm. that I see in encroaching, moments like we're in now, we're in June 2020, middle of COVID, and now Floyd. Yeah. This is times of crisis where people like Rapina mm. and people like Huck start actually finding their A-game in a way, mm. to use a horrible question. I think you're right, because the success, when I look back, Zero was launched. I mean, you know, the idea came, the ideas were developing in gestation in 2007, 2008, but it was launched at the beginning of 2009, just after, um, you know, the financial crisis and basically the collapse of the old publishing model. And I do wonder whether that didn't help Zero and allow it to thrive, just because publishers had their confidence destroyed in such a way that none of them were gonna go out and do anything courageous for a very long time after that, which left the way open to us. And perhaps if something good or useful or lasting comes out of this COVID period, it will be so far as we're concerned, that Repeater will be able to take advantage of a new conservatism that kicks in, a new aversion to risk. Because in the last 10 years since zero, um, publishers, um, the mainstream, doesn't seem to have taken the hint. Um, it doesn't seem to have adjusted or changed or you know, embraced anything challenging, which is why we're still necessary. Um, so much more necessary that we've edged our way into the mainstream, which was always our ambition. Mm. But, you know, they, they, they don't seem to have learnt the lessons from the last collapse yet. And now we may have another one. And we have to make all this bad. I mean, just as with a writer, one of the great things about being a writer is that no matter how many awful things happen to you, it could all be material. There could be redemption and salvation. You can take the blackest, most dead-end cul-de-sac experience, and hopefully, through the process of writing, the alchemy will turn it into redemptive gold. I apply the same principle to what is happening in publishing and in the economy, that all of this won't be a waste, it won't be for no reason, we'll be able to do something positive with it and convert it into... Uh, 
convert, can, you know, can, can convert it into something that will allow more voices to be heard and more other voices, more necessary voices to be heard. Yeah. To not be more afraid, but to be less afraid. To make something useful, yeah. useful out of all of this. Talk about necessary voices. Tell me about your relationship with Mark Fisher. Um, yeah, Mark, I mean, I... It, it would be overdoing it to say that I started Zero Books with a view to publishing Mark Fisher, but that was certainly one of the reasons why I started Zero. I had met him 10, 12 years before the beginning of Zero at Warwick, and to my shame, I um, mis, um, misconceived him as a person. Um, I know, I thought that he was slightly hysterical, quite fanatical um, and dogmatic. And over the years where I'd see him intermittently, I didn't really revise that position. And then, you know, I read, I was very slow to the internet and blogs. I read some of, some of his blog and it was extraordinary. And I didn't actually realize he'd even written it. And then I talked to someone who knew us both and they went, that's actually Mark. So I got in touch with him dire directly and at once. And so we can't just leave this to the internet. This needs to be in the form of a book. Because interesting as whatever you are doing on the internet is, nothing is ever going to uh, um, supersede the technology of books, uh, which is what I still think. They're, they're almost like the ultimate seal of this counts. This is a thing of value. Um, but books are still the most effective way of distilling and presenting what it is you have to say and to offer to the world. And I put it to him that as a blogger, he was never going to um, never going to attain that level of closure or exposure unless he he published. And out of that, and him telling me different people that he thought from his circle of bloggers that I didn't know that I should be publishing too, he went from being one of the first authors that I chosen to work with to. Um, commissioning editor, copy, copy editor, which wasn't his greatest role. Um, we found that out quickly to somebody else. And the person without whom I wouldn't have been able to be a publisher. Um, and um, he, he was the major force um, with me to launch and to sustain Zero Books. And to some extent, his publishing and political and creative vision is what Still in Jersey, repeater. See, I'm not, I'm not um, an aficionado of Mark Fisher's yeah. work. How would you place his work in the, in the bigger picture of culture? It's important. I think he was, um, I think in a different kind of culture, he would probably have had his own column in a broadsheet newspaper, be sat in the middle of a think tank, um, teach at Oxford or somewhere like that, and every year or so release another magnum opus through some academic publisher. But in the world we found ourselves in, he was, um, you know, working at a further education college um, and completely excluded from the mainstream discourse, which at the time we started Zero, I think pretty uncontentiously, was either shallow lifestyle journalism, with a few honourable exceptions, or deeply technical academic work written in jargonese with no real audience at all. And there wasn't anything very viable or credible between those two. And I would say that Mark was a popular generalist. 
And if that sounds dismissive, I don't mean it to. I mean it in the highest sense of that term being a compliment. He didn't arrive with one massive systematic theory. Um, he wasn't a system builder. Instead, he took a passionate interest in what people liked and from there looked to philosophize, universalize and understand why the world was working in the way that it was. So if you look through his oeuvre, it's very bitty. It's very choppy. Um, you know, you read the K-Punk book and it is like hearing him think or speak because he, he will move, you know, as he's now famous for doing from the last temptation of Christ to um, why he hates the stereophonics to Deleuze and Guattari to um, what was on television the night before with a seamlessness and a total lack of intellectual self-consciousness because he was interested in immersing himself in things and in understanding them properly. And then out of that, he, was he would be able to characterize a period, a trend or an era, which is what he did in capitalist realism. So it's a very unsystematic, unacademic way of approaching things, which is to be everywhere and then draw the right conclusions from all of that and find something to say about it. Um, and, he, and, and he was in confrontation with his times, which were, you know, the, the age of spin, of the auto cue, of every politician attempting to be as much like Tony Blair as they can, of surfaces, where he was all, he was completely to do with the vulnerable, awkward death. Yeah, yeah. It struck me as a bit like Gavin Hills with a PhD. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> that trivialises it a bit. You yeah. Know? But I've always struggled to actually get to grips with what his subject is, because that subject matters so... Popular culture. So, so um, diverse. Like yeah. I, I, his subject matter was um, popular culture. Mm. Um, and, the, and the last 40 years... So, roughly speaking, the present. Yeah, yeah. So, Mark Fisher was, was one of the things that kicked it off, right? And how did your process evolve so. in terms of commissioning writers? How does that work? I mean, I know you, you know, it's all very instinctual because you foolishly commissioned me once, by the time. Um, but, yeah, I'm still, yeah wait, I'm still waiting for that book. Tell me, yeah, tell me too. Tell me about that process and how it works with you and repeat that. It... We, we, it's, it's evolved from wanting to publish everybody, from absolute, raw, punk, DIY. How many people can we get into print? Because we began with very low overheads, very low costs, we were able um, to publish in stealth. I mean, you know, we, we didn't send out information sheets, we didn't attend book fairs, the quality of the paper was low. Um, there were three or four of us doing everything and um, being paid next to nothing for it. And the one advantage of that was there was massive scope for risk taking. So we went from, unfortunately, the first authors we all wrote, all wrote sort of mini classics of their kind as well. Um, but by the time we got to the third or fourth wave, I think we had commissioned so much stuff that there was a danger of really losing our way and um, losing a, a sense of what our guiding principles were. And with Repeater, we've gone to the opposite extreme, which is that we commission very little, one or two books a month. Um, 
What we have in common with Zero, of course, is that most of these people are new writers. That is, they're people that have never written a book before um, or may not have thought they were writers until they were approached to write a book or were writing but didn't think there was a hope they'd ever publish a book. There are many exceptions to that, but by and large, the majority are still new. So I guess our raison d'etre was and still is talent scouting. That's the theme. That's the continuity. But the difference is that whilst ideally with Zero, we wanted each book we did to be a mainstream smash. Some of our titles, which are so easy to caricature, had absolutely no hope of being that in this universe. You know, they would only be in some sort of madman's universe that Mark and I shared and, you know, where your favourite record is number one for 60 weeks rather than, you know, never selling a copy. Whereas with Repeater, partly because I think what we'd already done in publishing it helped influence what people thought was possible and what could be a mainstream success, partly because of the way, as I said earlier, the political climate, social climate had changed to come nearer us and what we were doing. Um, and also because we were concentrating more on the editing and working with authors, which we couldn't do when we didn't have the money, the resources or the time to do so and when we were working with so many. But what we can do now is sit down and really help a writer get to the bottom of what it is they're trying to say. And in, because of that, our books really are hitting them. All of those reasons, they really are hitting the mainstream now. Whereas before they did so fortuitously, maybe one in eight, one in 12. Um, now it's sort of every other one, um, which is where we want to place them and where we want them all to be. And how is that, um, is your independence uh, threatened by that move to the mainstream at all? You know, can, do you feel yourself getting, getting dragged in different directions because of the popularity no. Of the books? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think just because... I think it would do if you were just following what the mainstream trends were and trying to meet them, which we've never done. Um, I mean, we're arrogant and vain and big-headed enough to believe that we're trendsetters. So, because we're independent, we are clients of Penguin Man Random House, they will handle our distribution and our sales, help with marketing. But they're not our editorial team. They don't commission, you know, they don't do the covers. So we've got complete autonomy in that arrangement. And the only thing that will bring us down is that because we do so few books, if we miscalculate completely and have three flops in a row, then it's good night Vienna, we're in trouble and there's no coming back. That's the danger. Not that popularity means that we're conforming to what we think some image of the popular ease. That, 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 that isn't the problem. The problem is that there's some misstep, some way that we lose our touch with a book or two. And because we don't have a big backlist to support us, um, and because we don't have huge resources, we can't afford for very much to go wrong. And happily, we're, you know, by the end of last year, in a position where we had our first profitable year. And during COVID, Thanks, thanks to, you know, well, thanks obviously to the readership and authors, but also to an excellent team. Um, we've been able to replace the sales that we lost in the shops by moving everything online, selling directly off our website through the warehouse, 
convincing enough of our readers who are never into e-books to buy the things just to tide us over before normal service can hopefully be resumed. Right, and um, earlier it, it surprised me a bit not having known you for 10 years now, I think. Yeah. You spoke about your authorship in the past tense. What, me being an author in the past yeah, tense? Yeah, what's going on there? Um, because I, I want to know what, you know, because... Well, that, the point, that, the point that, is, wearing, wearing a... Um, there's nothing particularly inspiring about being a publisher that will help you write better books if you want to be an author. So there isn't some wonderful hybrid where there's a mutually complementary relationship between being a writer and being a publisher for me. They exist in separate spaces. And doing the publishing, going through the different calculations that you do as a publisher on any given day that might range from what sort of editorial help someone will need to what the book should be priced at in Canada isn't particularly conducive to creative inspiration of any kind. Um, and it, it occupies and barges into the space where you could just take a morning for what it is, something you don't know anything about yet. You know, to surrender yourself to the pure, open vitality of being alive is not what you can do as a publisher. You have to calculate, consider, think, um, formalize shit like a business person. So if I was talking about being an author in the past tense, it was just because at that moment I was talking about being a publisher and not my own writing. Yeah, yeah. As far as my own writing's concerned, I still fight for a time of the day where I can do it. And if, you know, I can get 10 minutes, half an hour, an hour done before everything else kicks off and the whistle goes in the morning, I know my day has not been in vain. Mm. Someone said to me uh, a long time ago that publishing was almost like rock and roll, a lot of the record trade, the music business is sort of slightly more uh, academic brother. It used to have, I feel mm. like, this feeling of it was people that were dwelling at the edge of a certain sort of chaos in the same way that the music Yeah, yeah, no, that, I mean... That, I mean, is it, was it true and is it still true <laughs> now? <laughs> I mean, you know, writers as rock stars, yes. You go through the pantheon of great writers and absolutely every one of them could front the clash or yeah, Guns yeah. N' Roses or Stone Roses, whoever it is, is in your personal pantheon. Um, there has never been as much money in writing as there has in rock and roll, which means that the business side has never been as well organised because there's less money for business to make out, out of writers than there was for them to make out of musicians. Um, but both, I suppose, are our arm of show business and entertainment. Both rely on like, exhibitionism, on a certain narcissism, um, and on something of ultimate irreducible importance, a tune, a paragraph written correctly, you know, that, you know, that, that they're, they're both of religious importance for the people that believe in them, um, that are reached by them, that connect properly to them. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you, obviously tone deaf. I can't, you know, but I, I love music. Um, music. I probably enjoy listening to music more than I enjoy reading. And that isn't because I don't love reading. It's just because listening to music, I, you know, there are not many things more important yeah. than that, I think, yeah. um, in, in conveying a, a emotion and in um, sort of get, getting to the heart, heart of, to get into the heart of things. Um, so, but 
it was definitely because I, you know, I, I never thought much about publishers when I was writing novels, as in, do I want to become one? I had no publishing role models. Um, there was nobody in publishing that I emulated or really knew much about. Whereas I did know about people like Malcolm McLaren, Alan McGee, Ivo Watts, um, you know, the crosses between Del Boy and Oscar Wilde, the sort of Svengali's that, um, that, bought, that bought entire societal movements. Um, yeah, facilitators. Yeah, really, right? yeah. The catalyst, catalysts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that had that, that sort of mixture between a proper understanding of what the artist was doing and that art was the thing, yeah, yeah. the king. Whilst at the same time having the push and the shove and the chutzpah and the edge to make it in the marketplace, yeah. to not be suffocated in the doorway by business interests yeah. or allow the thing that they were looking to promote and reach as many people as possible be destroyed by, you know, the, the breadheads, the man. And um, I should think that if I had any publishing role models, they were ironically not publishing ones, but um, those, those, those hustlers in the music industry. Yeah, yeah. So when did you first glimpse the possibility of this kind of life? You mean... Um, well, this life, a literary mm. life, a, a life where you, you're an author, a novelist, and a publisher, it's, um, it's not... I mean, with it's a, not, with it's an, not a with career an, path that one, no, I know. one dreams about. Well, I've never, thought, I've never thought about having a career. Um, a career. The idea of a career comes consequently after I'm in the middle of what I'm doing. And I think... Yeah, maybe I can make a living. Well, that's why I call it a story. life rather than yeah, yeah, because no, it, it is a life. It's not, you know, doing this kind of thing that you've done. And, yeah. and the, the I mean, I, as, done. I was a sixteen-year-old and I had to express myself, and I knew I wouldn't be happy doing anything for a living that didn't allow me to express myself properly, and that the best way I could find of expressing myself was in arranging words in a form, and um, I understood that completely in the kind of literary experiences I was having in my teens were so exciting. They showed me the fullness of the world and what life could be. And I said earlier, music was more important to me and still is. It is because it, um, it, it, it shares life's mystery with me. But in as much as wanting to command life and say what is what, nothing was better or more than writing, nothing still is. So. That, that came as in my teens. It was the only thing I was ever going to do. I was fortunate enough, or, I mean, I spent a year at the Listen Grove Job Club where I wondered what would happen to me, but that isn't a long time in the progress of a writer. And I was fortunate enough to have my books out and for them to do well in my 20s. Um, and I didn't have any thought about going past that until I got to my early 30s. And as I said earlier, began to want to do more with people and not know how. At the same time as realising there was writing I liked that wouldn't be published unless, you know, I've said before, messianically, you know, somewhat messianically, unless I, I, I did something about that. Um, but the two didn't come at once. I never had any ambition to be a publisher. I felt that a writing would be enough for me. But after a particular, reaching a particular point, I thought if I'm not a publisher, then I'm almost a solipsist. I don't know whether I will ever meet people on, of course I can reach them emotionally or spiritually with what I've written, but 
What practical use am I? And where could I be of practical use? Well, obviously, in the industry I work in, in writing. So it grew out of that. Musical moments then, you talked Mm. about literary experiences. Are they they mixed up in your mind then? It sounds like they are, like, in a way that, you know... With film and theatre. Bob Dylan's a Nobel laureate in literature, right? They are the same thing. But for me, a musical experience is like a real life experience. You know, it's not in some kind of aesthetic category by itself. You know, if I saw a play that affected me as I have, or a film that I have, these are things that happen in life that are as important as discovering a sense of smell or touch or lying in the bath as a kid and watching cloud movement and one, you know, wonder what happens to us when we all die. That kind of thing. Music ranks like that. Um, it's happening in life and not in some subset of life called aesthetic categorization. What's your favourite band then? <laughs> I don't I mean... I, <laughs> what colour socks do you wear? Do you know, I wouldn't have been able to answer that question at 16 because I already love too much stuff. No, and no, I, I certainly can't... Uh, I mean, these guys were... These guys, these guys were important to you, right? Yeah, Suede. Yeah. Tell me about Suede because yeah. you got a relationship with these guys and it was kind of a... I feel like something about Suede... Uh, yeah. you, there's something between you and Suede... Parallel and that nights. period, and that kind of mid-90s, I'm guessing. Yeah, early 90s. Early um, mid-90s, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, heard, I heard the single on the radio and couldn't believe my ears that there could be a singing voice like that that was at once comedic but also extremely serious. Um, and... I, you know, for me, I know that hates to be described like this, but they were sort of Southern Smiths. So culturally, um, I felt already at home with them. You know, it was like, I could imagine it being the music to an alternative Steptoe and Son or something like that. And um, I had a group, group of friends and I went to see one of their very first shows. And I felt like I was in history and it was happening. It was extremely exciting. I mean, it's mad and improbable shit. I mean, it's like non-stop stage diving, which you'd expect at Fugazi or something like that. Um, so, they, you know, they'd been on my radar a long time. I, I admired them, um, you know, massively. And then along you know, became friends. So when several years later... Matt Osman, their bassist, said that he actually had a novel that he wanted to show me. It seemed like a good time to return the favour. And, and happily, it was brilliant. And I didn't have to lie or um, humour him and then ask him to sh- take it to some other publisher. It struck me when a real insight into what you guys have done was at, um, I think, it was, was it a Christmas gathering of the repeater crew? Then it may have been. It was the most unlikely yeah. bunch of people. Uh, yeah. gathered together they're not the, the sort of people that would gather in any other way you know, mm. they, they are they are collective in their otherness that's, that's why they're writers in the way that they know. paddle against the flow you know, yeah, like they, yeah. they're not people that mm. just get caught I, I, I would diplomatically <laughs> use the euphemism of a very esoteric bunch yeah. I actually think if you had had and we did have zero gatherings of writers then the curiosity factor would be even higher yeah um, I think of, you know, a lot of our repeater 
Right, so seriously, pass for ordinary professional people and not, ma- not madmen and women. Um, so, you know, that I, I, I actually see um, it, it moderating yeah. somewhat. It's quite brave of you, I thought, as well, to get all your authors together in one, in one place as well, because I know that's a classic. I mean, journalistic editors don't like getting their hacks all in one place because they're all bitching about you behind I, your back. I think life and publishing is full of disappointment, but I don't think we are dishonest or shortchanging anyone, so I am prepared to meet them face-to-face and share their disappointment with them and take it on the cheek. <laughs> because whilst I accept that publishing a book is one of the most wonderful things that can happen to you, but it can also break your heart. It has the potential to tear you into pieces, to make you miserable and elate you. You get all of that. And it's worth doing, but you get all of that. I, I, I do accept that it isn't going to... Relative failure and even modest success isn't going to hurt a publisher as much as it will hurt an author. But that person it will hurt the most after the author is the publisher, and that's me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and I understand disappointment very well, and I'm prepared to talk to disappointed people but that's if I have to. It's also one of the beauties no. of the book for me, is that they, they kind of they wither on the vine, they fall to the ground, and then you go and find them a generation yeah. later, and they look completely new. Your day is not necessarily done just because this wasn't your day. No, exactly. And, you know, we, we, we could sit here all night talking about how people get it wrong at the moment. For some reason, I was guided towards um, the NME's top 100 albums of 1992, quite recently. And it was very funny to find things like K.D. Lang and the Black Crows and a totally ropey Prince album no one would rate, you know, clogging up the front end and then right at the bottom, PJ Harvey or Pavement or whoever we now recognise as the undisputed masters of the classic albums of that period. I mean, not everything they liked then was shit, but enough was for me to be able to reassure anyone whose day hasn't come now that it may come later. And it will definitely come. You may not be alive to see it, or enjoy it, but your work's day will come, yeah. if it's good. One book, one film. Okay. Um, one book, one film, one album. Um, the COVID, the COVID uh, isolation list. Well, I... take one. It's, with the proviso that this isn't the best or even my favourite, but what I'm thinking about at the moment and that's the Pogues, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. Um, Henry James, could almost be anything by Henry James. What in particular? But um, I'll go for a portrait of a lady, even though it isn't from my favorite period. He does something so sick halfway through that you realize you're reading a different book and sat at the table with a different man. That's an incredible literary and life effect. And the film, What Holds Up to Endless... You know, we we sat down when COVID started to watch Tarkovsky and It's Hard to Be a God and what's it called, Salamanga or whatever the fucking hell it's called. Um, You know, two months in, we've seen Police Academy 2, 3 and (laughs) 4. You know, still struggling with the classics. Um, For a film, Break a Morant with Edward Woodward. Really? Yeah. No, never seen it. Austra- Australian filmmaking at its finest. 
um, classic anti-establishment movie about how um, the small guy is right and the system can go and fuck itself. Great, yeah, set during the Boer War. Mm. One for the Affianados. Yeah, totally. Thanks for listening to Joining the Dots. My name's Mike Fordham. I want to say a big thanks to Rob Taliesin Owen, the Sonic Alchemist, as well as publisher Vince Medeiros and editor Andrew Curlin. Thanks also goes out to Dom Sisley, Niall Flynn and Ben Cook and all of you who subscribe to the mag. And if you haven't already, be sure to go to huckmag.com for all the good stuff. And if you haven't already, don't forget to check out the first series of Joining the Dots, hosted by Don Letts. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.